Welcome to another edition of Legends of Film. I'm Clint Tatum. Today I'm bringing you an interview that William Chamberlain did with the writer-director Michael Mann. Among his films are Manhunter, The Last of the Mohicans, Miami Vice, and Thief. We will be showing Thief on Saturday, May 13th at 2 p.m. at the Downtown Public Library. More later, on to the interview. You once stated as a director, you start having images very early on a project, and that's how projects come alive to you that occur in your imagination even before you're writing a screenplay, ideas that become evocative. What images did you have before starting writing the script Thief? They're they're unassociated, but they're probably those alleyways in downtown Chicago in the loop between the 19th century buildings uh, with cobblestone, the kind of lace work that the fire escapes make coming down from, you know, the backs of buildings on both sides and the alleyways, particularly in the rain and the winter at night. A lot of the steel bridges, the black steel bridges over the Chicago River throughout the city, throughout the, you know, the inner city area, downtown on the south side, southwest side, over the Kankakee River, south of Chicago. You know, there's a certain romance to uh, the industrial architecture of Chicago that, that particularly appealed to me. And then the reflection that the city lights make on the, the streets at night, and because of the duplication of the perspective into four lines of lights, i.e. the two with the real lights and then the two lines of lights reflected in the black pavement when it's wet, made the city feel kind of like a tunnel. And, you know, those images, some other images that don't really relate to Thief, which is the sense of being on the prairie, which I felt very strongly growing up there. You also stated as a filmmaker or storyteller, I start with the question, how should this story tell itself? And when you made Thief, uh, what was the answer to that question? Okay. The, <laughs> well, first of all, I, the question before that question, which was, what, was what, is it, what do I want this to mean? How do I want to, I was attracted to the material. How do I want to use this material? The idea of a professional thief and how he sees the world struck me in a really interesting way because I felt it was like a perspective into our culture and our politics and our economy in other words, everything in our life, how we live our lives, that is from an outside perspective. It's outside all the norms. And so then the theme that uh, that could be used as an agent for how we see and experience our lives because he's outside the norms and will collide with the, with the uh, structures and the contradictions within our, within our system um, in ways that are unique and ways that, we're, that are atypical and we're not used to seeing, and that may make those contradictions have even more uh, impact upon us. I then furthered that by the uh, notion, by adding to his background, adding to his biography, that let's say he'd been in prison from when he was 18 to when he was 33, or 17 when he was 33, so that all of the coming to manhood that people normally have within our, within our culture, you know, he missed. And so his only idea of what that would be like, his only idea of how to live life, how to behave, 
how to go about getting what you want out of life had to be drawn from abstract materials like magazines and newspapers, because that's all he had when he was in Joliet Prison, and which made him even more uh, conform even more to, um, to to the convention, particularly in 19th century literature, of the wild child and how that's used uh, also as an agent of discovery of things that we're used to, we're, we're inured to the systems around us. We swim within the stream of, a, of, of our lives and our consciousness and our culture without really being aware of them because we're, we're in the stream. Uh, so you see that stream a lot more clearly with somebody that has to deal with it or attack it from the outside. So that became the opportunity. And then the, uh, and the, the to, to explore that theme, the the the, the theme uh, of what the movie is about is really about exploitation, and 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 in that sense, the whole of the movie is a metaphor. So therefore, I wanted Frank to be seduced into making a Faustian bargain with Leo out of necessity because he wants to get a child and constitute a family very quickly, and, and thereby. Uh, allows himself to be seduced into a exploitative relationship, which is similar to the relationship of any of any of us who work for wages, where we are trading our independence and trading the true value of what we create by our work for a fraction in the form of wages. And 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 we we uh, give up uh, control. We give up ownership of it. So the whole of the story of thief could also have been told in say an advertising agency. It could have been a fine arts painter who, out of necessity, is seduced by Leo Burnett to go to work for the Leo Burnett advertising agency. Uh, initially, he thinks it's okay. He has. Uh, the equation goes like this. Um, I will pay you a salary and be paternally benevolent to you in exchange for which you will render to me filial piety. So it's almost like a Confucian um, uh, formula. And except that, he has got to do what Leo Burnett tells him to do, not what he wants to do. And it's basically a ripoff. That is That was the road by which I came to make Thief. So... Thief, it says it's based on a book called The Home Invaders by Frank Holmeyer, and as you stated, you threw the book out. Mm -hmm. And I found traces of the book, however, like the character of Oka and the character Joe Gags, and also in the movie Manhunter, Francis Dolaride would shine a flashlight in his victim's face like Holmeyer would, and there's the torture gang that's led by Frankie Sander and Nick Rocco that became a episode of Miami Vice called The Home Invaders, so... Right. Could you say that was Frank Holmeyer's book was more of a reference guide? Well, it's a reference guide. Also, shining a light in the victim's eye is just tradecraft. And um, um, Holmeyer is a pretty despicable guy, as it turned out. And I wasn't interested in home invasions. And uh, we had had a negotiation. I had optioned the book at one point, so you're then kind of legally bound to give the book credit and all the other stuff and that's why it, that's why I did Frankie Yonder was Y O N D R Frankie Yonder was a notorious home invader a crew of home invaders in Chicago and the um, 
uh, Charlie Adamson, who was a, uh, a very good friend of mine who I worked with quite a bit, who was a uh, sergeant in the criminal intelligence unit of the Chicago Police Department, which is an elite kind of major crime unit. Uh, he had worked Frankie Yonder. So did the, his partner, who was Dennis Farina, who was also in Thief, who later became, you know, an actor for me in uh, in Thief as well as in uh, Manhunter and, and Miami Vice. On the set of Thief, you were talking about you had Charles Adamson and Dennis Farina, and you also had criminals like John Santucci and W.R. Right. Brown. and working as technical advisors or actors occupying the same scene, what was it like? Was there friction? No, it wasn't friction at all. These guys all knew each other. I mean, Charlie introduced me to... Charlie Adamson is who introduced me to John Santucci. And John Santucci grew up in the same neighborhood with Dennis Farina. They all grew up in the same inner-city part of Chicago. I grew up in a other inner-city part of Chicago, kind of adjacent to where these guys originally grew up. Well, Charlie was from the far north side. Dennis Farino's family originally came from the Patch, uh, the old Italian-American neighborhood. So that's where Santucci's family was from. So, you know, and they regularly interacted, meaning they would, they would, um, uh, Santucci, it's a little bit complex how it works. It's basically a, a small geographical area in which everything is possible, and everybody knows everybody else. So John Santucci, at one and the same time, was a highline jewel thief. At the same time, he was an informant. And he would inform on some people and not on other people. He would inform and tell Charlie Adamson and Bill Anhart, who was Charlie Adamson's boss, truthful information sometimes and lie to him at other times. And then disappear and go off and put down a score. Now, if he put down a score somewhere outside Chicago, they didn't really care. If he scored in Chicago, they cared a lot, and then they'd pick him up, beat the hell out of him. And then a week later, they'd be buying him breakfast. So there's a constant interaction. And, 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 and culturally, in terms of what kind of music they listen to, how they dress, how they relate to their families, they're all identical. In your movies, there's an interesting protagonist-antagonist relationship, like in Thief, Leo admires Frank. Frank has real good taste. There's a real paternal relationship, but by the end of the movie, Leo's going to kill kill Frank if he doesn't do what he says. And in Manhunter, Will Graham has empathy for Francis Dolaride, but at the same time, he wants to blow him away. And in Heat, Vincent Hanna respects Neil McCauley, but kill it will kill him if he has to. And what's your attraction to this type of contradictory relationship? Uh, that they. Well, first of all, it's not really a contradiction in in, uh, in Thief. It's really a process. Leo is paternally benevolent to Frank. Frank thinks this is all good until Frank decides he's done the two scores he said he's going to do and wants his money, and and uh, the relationship's going to be over. That was the agreement. And then he realizes that Leo has invested his money in something else. He can't have his money, and that begins the conflict. Um, the conflict is emotional. Leo truly is offended. Leo, if 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 you were able to ask that character questions and say, he asked him, "Are you intentionally manipulating and exploiting Frank and attempt to turn him into a dependent so that he will uh, accommodate everything you want him to do?" He would probably honestly say, "No, I'm treating him like a son. I'm looking out for him. He's not." But that's the, you know. So it's not a. Uh, 
uh, it's not a relationship filled with awareness. It's just strictly a conflict. The other kinds of ones that you, that you, 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 uh, you know, smartly point out, are they're a little bit different. The, the, um, in heat, there is, uh, well, let me, let me back up a second. I was first taken with the notion that we tend to define things in dualities. We think in terms of binaries, that uh, somebody is an enemy or they're a friend, and life's more complex than that. And particularly when you get into the real world of the kinds of savage, uh, sick, pathological uh, crimes that Graham is working, where you're faced with contradictions in the moral judgments and your feelings are not so simple because you know that this heinous killer was was manufactured by his history. He didn't start out this way at, at, you know, three days old as an infant. He was abused. He was battered. He was probably battered, not just a child, but maybe a battered infant, something at the time they called Marasmus Syndrome. And that's the the destruction of his self-esteem by an abusive parent, driven by a strong ego, will produce the Francis Dollarhides, who are eternally on a like a rat on a treadmill trying to get to something. And that's their fantasy. And they'll commit heinous crimes to do it uh, without any regard or even passion to the victim. The victim is simply being used. So if you're, if you're Crawford or if you're better, if you're Graham, how do you relate to this? And you can't falsify and, and, and merely have a perspective of this person is evil and I want to destroy them because you will short-circuit your own intellect and your own intuition which you need in order to stop them. So you have to be truthful and authentic in you understanding them. And that's why Graham says this line. He says, uh, you, know, uh, you know, as a child, my heart goes out to him. Uh, you know, as an adult, you know, you know, I'd like to blow the sick fuck out of his socks. And then he looks at Crawford and he says, does that contradiction, does that disturb you, Jack? Because it's a difficult it's difficult to maintain a duality. In heat, it's a different story. In heat, it's it's um, there's a um, a premise to the that precedes the film, which is that what if what if Neil Macaulay and um, Vincent Hanna were real, really were dialectical opposites. They have like a classic Hegelian dialectic. They have components of their personality that are identical. They're both conscious. They both do not game themselves. They do not tell themselves stories. They, they perceive life as life is. And they also have components that are totally oppositional. Uh, uh, Neil McCauley is something of a sociopath. He cares about what he wants and what his crew wants, but he doesn't care about you. If you get in his way and he has to kill you, it's your bad fortune. Hannah obviously has a moral compass. So what struck me as interesting is that both of them are in the same high degree of awareness of, of life, life around them, and, and it makes a, a rapport. Now, 
the prelude to that rapport is that is respect, and that you see all the time among detectives and and uh, towards criminals. They 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 will absolutely take a criminal down. They will they'll stay up day and night to take him down. And if the guy's really good at what he does, there'll be respect. And that's something that I learned from being around these kinds of of uh, of high performing high end detectives who work really serious cases. And it was it was uh, not something you see in drama or in uh, or in movies or television, but in real life. You, you know, first time I experienced that, I said, you know, it was it was it was uh, it was kind of an, an awakening, you know. Uh, and it was Charlie Adamson talking to me about the real Neil McCauley and saying, "Oh, this guy was a great thief," you know, and uh, disciplined, smart, you know, really a top line, really a high line pro. We had total respect for the guy, and he was curious about the guy. He wanted to find an opportunity to sit down with him and say and ask him about some of this trade craft because he thought it was really brilliant and why he thought to do one thing and why he thought to do the other. That wouldn't uh, ameliorate. One iota, Charlie's zeal to take this guy down, and eventually he killed him. So the two coexist. I find those kinds of unexpected uh, states of contradiction fascinating. Well, I've watched several of your movies, and like in the movie Thief, Frank makes right. a statement, he's walking time. In Heat, Neil McCauley makes a statement, Walk out in 30 seconds flat if you spot the heat around the corner, and he also wants to, enough time to do what he wants to do. In Public Enemy, Dillinger can go through a bank in four minutes and 40 seconds flat. And like in Collateral, the movie takes place in a 10-hour night. And I just, time seems to be an important theme in your movies, and what's the attraction? Well, there's a couple of things. One is that it helped, it, it, it's... You know, I find it it's an exciting um, kind of elastic uh, tension that you could use to pull the movie together. So narratively, it's opportune. The the attraction for time, I'm just going to skip around in my answers here. The attraction to me of, of doing all of collateral in 10, in 10 hours was because I had made about three extremely large movies in a row. And I don't mean large in terms of the size of the physical production. I mean that they are large-scale narr- narratives with lots of moving parts, lots of characters, lots of substories that you're trying to hold together. I had done uh, Insider, which is two hours and 45 minutes of talking, of people talking, and uh, basically. And it's I, I think it works as a two-hour and 45-minute movie. It's tense. I had done Heat, and then I had... Um, at the last Mohican, so so I done three very large, challenge you know challenging stories and physical production in a row. So the idea of of going very of taking a whole narrative that's so compressed like kind of a jewel and you know and and, and doing all the story within ten hours in which people don't change clothes, you don't change the city. It's all you know it was very appealing to me. Um, I'm conscious of time. Another answer to your question is I'm conscious of time. I'm, I'm, I know how much time I've, I think I know how much, you always be surprised because the sky falls or an earthquake happens, you get killed, but I'm conscious of how much time I have on the planet and what I want to get done while I'm here. I try to work backwards from that, you know, like most people, half successfully, half not successfully. So I'm aware of time going by. There's a different relationship of time that 
a guy like like um, Dillinger has, as opposed to a guy like Frank. And that's something that John Santucci explained to me. He said that people, his theory was that people either are, you either have the uh, mentality to do burglaries where you can go into a place and you may spend 72 hours over a weekend drilling in, into uh, safety deposit vaults in a bank, okay? And that takes, and you're fine. Um, or you have the mentality of an armed robber where you're going to go in fully armed and every single second feels like an hour. And he said the two don't mix. He went on one armed robbery once and he couldn't stand it. And guys who do armed robberies, um, and they will, they will, they may take two, three months to set up a score, but when they go in, it's a four minute job. The notion that they're going to lock themselves into a little room for two days and nights is, 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 is anathema to them, you know? So. Thief came out in March 27, 1981, and was released by United Artists, and just four months prior to that, Heaven's Gate premiered, and it was the beginning of the end of United Artists. And right. How did that affect your movie, and do you have any memories about that time? Oh, yeah. It affected the movie uh, kind of disastrously because the whole administration of United Artists changed about three weeks before we were released, or maybe four or five weeks before we were released. So, you know, the everybody... Uh, all the all the marketing people and distribution people um, who planned a, a campaign for marketing a movie well in advance, they they knew that they that they were on their way out, and so they had checked out. So we didn't really have much marketing of of Thief. And by the time the movie actually got released, there was an entirely new administration inside United Artists, which was that point owned by Transamerica, I believe, and, and, and an insurance company in San Francisco, and the guy in charge of it had some plantations of Christmas trees someplace. I mean, it was like, you know, it was not good, let me put it that way. The reviews helped a lot, but we had cinemas in Chicago calling up my office saying, hey, we don't have any posters a week beforehand. So, I mean, it was a real, <laughs> it was a real catastrophe. I want to ask about, you directed The Keep, and your production designer was John Box, who worked on Lawrence of Arabia and Dr. Zhivago and A Man for All Season, and Mr. Box was noted for creating exotic locations and unlikely settings. Did you witness this on the set of The Keep? Absolutely. We were, uh, it was great. He became a close friend, and we had a great relationship. We, you know, we, we were searching all over Europe for a, uh, uh, a mountainous pass that, in a, it, that would have black rock, which we couldn't find. And then we wound up finding it in a slate quarry in Wales. We, if, we, if you're down at the bottom of a quarry and you're looking up at 150-foot-high walls, for all intents and purposes, you're in a mountain pass. The brilliance of his production design and the authenticity of it, the uh, Romanian settings and coming up with with a uh, kind of a modernist keep, you know, taking cues from different architects, you know, was, it was breathtaking to see him work. The murals on the little Romanian Orthodox Church, Greek Orthodox Church, all that, the uh, finials on the roof, everything, the detail of it, and the uh, the dryness of it was uh, was extraordinary. He's a, he was just a great guy.
Okay, and the final question is, uh, what are you working on next? What's your next movie going to be? Next movie is maybe on and maybe one year in the life of uh, Enzo Ferrari. It all takes place in 1957. Well, I'm looking forward to it, and I just wanted to say um, thank you for, I know you're a busy man, and thank you for doing this for me. It's my pleasure. I, uh, thanks for the very the questions are very good, and, uh, and I appreciate it. I would like to thank Michael Mann for doing the interview. Don't forget we will be showing Thief on Saturday, May 13th at 2 p.m. at the Downtown Public Library. Today's music is the track Burning Bar from Tangerine Dream's score to Thief. <laughs>